Welcome back to the Grace Life Fellowship Podcast. As you know, we're currently going through Pastor Frank's series, Live Free, A Study of Galatians. So if you haven't checked out yesterday's episode, you might want to start there. Today, we will continue the series with his message entitled, Freedom Fighter. So here's Pastor Frank. Good morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. And while you're doing that, I would just like to share my heart with you. I have been doing what I do for almost 40 years now. And in my humble opinion, this may be the most important chapter in the New Testament. And knowing that has placed great trepidation on me (laughs) to attempt to teach it. So I will covet your prayers as we walk through this. In his book, But We Were Born Free, Elmer Davis penned this powerful call upon all Americans to be ready to rise up and fight for the freedom that our ancestors secured. He said, this will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. Did you hear that? This will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. The implication of that is freedom is not guaranteed. There are always those people who will tyrannize us and want to take away our freedom. And that means our freedom is going to have to be fought for. And that means we're going to have to be the ones to rise up and fight. The Apostle Paul, I have little doubt, would echo that declaration. And it's call upon us as Christians to be ever ready to stand up and fight to protect the freedom our Lord Jesus secured for us at the cross. Galatians 5.1 should be the theme of every Christian household. It was for freedom that Christ died to make us free. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, the New Testament now declares that we are free from the punishment of sin, free from the power of sin, free from our past. My goodness, where's the amen corner? (laughs) Let me try that again. Free from our past. Even if we don't feel like it. Free from guilt and shame. And we're going to see in Galatians today that we have been set free from the law so that we could be set free to live. That we can be free to, as well as free from. Free from all those things and then free to God so that we could be a dwelling place for him to express his life through us. The law, as we saw last week, had a very specific purpose from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It came with the purpose of killing us and condemning us. The law was given to refute the lie of the garden that we in our own resources could actually be like God. 
That we could secure our own life and righteousness apart from God. That we could live independent of God. In fact, I want to take you on a very short rabbit trail. But it's a fat rabbit. First, a question. To all of you who uh, had parents. I worry about some of you. Did your parents ever make rules in your household growing up? Did they make rules like don't run in the house, don't eat in the living room? Why did they make those rules? They made those rules to stop you from running in the house and stop you from eating in the living room. That's how it is with our government. Our government makes rules. Don't kill people. The speed limit is 65. Why does our government make those rules? To stop us from killing people and to stop people from driving over 65. Rules are made to stop behavior. That is normality. Having stated that, I would want to take you to a verse. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 20. A verse that's rarely heard in church, especially legalistic, religious, rule-keeping churches. This is what Romans 5.20 says. The law came in that sin might increase. My friends, did you see it? The law from God came in not to stop behavior, but so that sin would increase. God gave the law knowing full well that it would not keep us from sinning, but actually lead us to sinning even more. Now, please understand, we we need to own this. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy, perfect, and good. The problem, according to Romans 7, is this thing called sin. When a commandment is given, the power of sin takes the commandment and produces in us all kinds of sinning. Let me put a rule on you right now. Don't look at that back wall. Now, I doubt whether there's a single one of you that's even been thinking about that wall, but I bet you're thinking about it right now. And knowing some of you, some of you are probably thinking, oh, yeah, Frank, watch me. That's called the power of sin. So why would God give the law knowing that we would sin even more? Think about that. Maybe so we'd get sick of sinning and cry out to God for a better way to do life. And it's exactly what Galatians 3.24 says. The law was our taskmaster to drive us to Jesus. And in finding Jesus, my friends, we find life. we got to remember that this is nothing new. The early pages of Genesis taught this to us. God intended us to know from the very beginning that we were never supposed to live under the law. Remember what he told Adam and Eve about that tree? He said, don't eat from it. It will kill you. My friends, we were never even supposed to know right and wrong. That's hard for us to get that into our brains. We were never supposed to even know right and wrong. All we were supposed to know was the living God and live from him. But we in Adam chose other than God and we've been living in sin and death ever since. That's why Jesus came to be our redeemer. He came to deliver us from the law and the economy of achieving and bring us back to receiving life from God in an economy of grace. My friends, I've said this so many times here at Grace Life. We'll keep saying it as long as Father allows me to be here. 
There are only two religions in the world. There is the religion of human achievement and the religion, if you will, of divine accomplishment. The religion of human achievement tells man, go do. And places upon man the necessity of doing good works in order to merit acceptance from God. It doesn't matter what name it goes by. Mormonism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, by the way, apostate Christianity. So it could bear the name of Presbyterian and Baptist and Catholic. Doesn't matter what name it goes by, my friends. Whenever the message is you go do and merit acceptance from God, that is the religion of human achievement. On the other side, there is the religion, if you will of divine accomplishment that tells man it is done and places the emphasis on what God has done for man in order to make man acceptable to God apart from man's goods works. Don, what's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> Let's try it again. The religion of divine accomplishment tells man it is done and places the emphasis on what God has done for man in order to make man acceptable to God apart from man's good works. There you go. What did God do? He sent his son. I can't imagine that. I would not offer my son for any of you. He sent his son to take our sins away and make us righteous before God. It's a free gift from his gracious hand. But there's a problem. And the problem is there are people. And there are lots of them who stand more than ready to tell us that the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf was not enough. They speak with great authority, by the way, that we need to do the good works of the law to either fully secure our salvation before God or maintain our sanctification in our walk with God. And what makes these people so dangerous, my friends, is they name the name of Jesus. They bring their damnable message in the church. You've heard them. I know you have. You know, if you really want to be right with God, you know, if you really want to be strong, you know, if you really want to be holy, then this is what you've got to do. Oh, you've got to be baptized. You've got to read the King James Bible. You've got to abstain from certain feuds. You've got you to worship on a certain day. You've got to speak in tongues. And the list goes on and on and on with as many things to do as these creatively carnal minds can come up with. My friends, we saw last time that anytime anyone adds to the message of Jesus plus, even if it's really good things, they're perverting or distorting the gospel. We saw last week it's even worse than that. Those words are not strong enough. We saw from Galatians 1.7, the Greek word metastrophe, that when they're, what they're actually doing is reversing the gospel. By adding something for us to do, they are leading us away from Jesus, who has done it all, and put us on a path that is 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the gospel of grace. One law, that's all it takes. Paul warned us about this grave danger in 2 Corinthians 11.3, one of my favorite verses. 
He told us to be careful that we do not allow ourselves to be led away from the simplicity of Jesus and go back into the complexity of religion. I love the way Red Stedman put it. He said, the main thing about being a Christian is to see that the main thing remains the main thing. The main thing is Jesus. Our focus is to be on what he has done. Our focus is to be on, on what he has promised to do. And our only response is to place our faith in him that he will do as he promised. For the just shall live by good works. Boy, I'm glad that sounded the alarm. The just shall live by faith. And so we come to Galatians chapter 2, a hugely important chapter. Paul was planting churches all over Asia Minor, establishing them in the simplicity of Jesus and the glorious economy of receiving what Jesus has established for us. Right on his heels, everywhere he went, came groups of men who came to be known as Judaizers, legalists, religionists, who brought to those very same churches the message of Jesus plus, seeking to place those very same churches back under the complexity of the law and the economy of achieving that never secured freedom for anyone. So what I want to tell you is a battle is about to be fought. And I cannot stress to you enough how important this battle is. If this battle is not fought and won, the very life and existence of the church is in danger of being snuffed out and Jesus will have died in vain. The infant church is in need of a hero. The infant church is in need of a freedom fighter. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 says, I will be that man. Jesus secured our freedom at the cross, but someone needs to stand up right now in this pivotal moment of history and protect and secure that freedom or it could be lost. Welcome to Galatians chapter 2. Let's pray. Our Father, this is, uh, this is it. This is the mountaintop. The Gospels take us to a hill and point us to a cross. Galatians chapter 2 tells us what it means. And the enemy has fought so very hard against us, trying to keep us from understanding what it means. And so the Apostle Paul went to war and he wrote down how the war went so that we will have it and know how to fight in our day. So open our eyes by the power of your spirit to stand securely In the finished work of Jesus, we'll pray in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to break this passage down into three main sections. One, Paul's public fight for freedom, verses 1 through 10. Secondly, Paul's private fight for freedom, verses 11 through 14. 
And then in synopsis, thirdly, the freedom that we fight for, which will be 15 to 21. Let's look first at Paul's public fight for freedom, verses 1 and 2. We need to read them because they are hugely important verses. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and look at this, and took Titus with me. And went up by revelation, in other words, God told him to do it. And I communicated unto them at Jerusalem the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, privately to them who were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. So after 14 years from chapter 1, Paul tells us that it's, he's now completed, in other words, his first missionary journey, and he's been preaching Jesus everywhere he went. Multitudes have received Christ, mostly the Gentiles. Many churches have been established, and now he goes to Jerusalem to bring Barnabas and Titus. Titus is the issue. Titus was a Gentile convert to Jesus who had never been circumcised. God had saved Titus and sanctified Titus apart from the act of circumcision. I put it to you this way. Titus is exhibit A, a test case for the church. What has now been called the Jerusalem Council is going to be convened. The Jerusalem Council functions much like our Supreme Court in America. They're going to hear evidence and make a decision. They're going to deliver a precedent case that will become the law of the land for the church. Now, context is obviously important, so we go to Acts 14. There we're told that Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch following their journeys and reported how God had opened a huge door of faith to the Gentiles. And so we come to Acts 15.1. You might even want to turn there. This is another hugely important verse. We're told there at Antioch that men from Judea, professing believers, rise up in the church in Antioch and offer their message. It is a different message than the one Paul has given, a distorted message, a perverted message, 180 degrees diametrically opposed to the message of grace. If you look at the verse, this is what they say. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Now look at this language. You cannot be saved. You can't become a Christian unless you first become a Jew. The battle, my friends, is on. So at that point, verse 2, Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas conducted peace talks with them. Let's negotiate. Is that what it says? You know, when it comes to tyrannical people, the one thing we have got to learn, and we never seem to learn it in humanity, is that you can't negotiate with terrorists. The world tried to negotiate with Adolf Hitler. It did not work. They should have rose up against him in his infancy and knocked him out. Because by letting him hang around, he gained greater power that took greater effort to take him out. And so Paul and Barnabas, my friends, look at the verse, verse 2, had great dissension, great debate. 
And the church at Antioch said, this is a matter that needs to be taken to Jerusalem. This is a matter that needs to go to the Supreme Court. Verses 4 and 5. So they went to Jerusalem, reported all that God had done, saving Gentiles. And look at the language. And the Pharisees who had believed, that's very important, said it's necessary to circumcise them, look at this, and direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, I believe with all my heart these people, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, were Christians. But they had lived under law as a people for 1,500 years. I trust you know that's going to be a hard pill to swallow to say we don't do that anymore. I believe they were Christians who were struggling to embrace their freedom. They were confused. But the battle lines have been drawn. And look at verse five, and there was much debate. And here's how the debate went. In verses six through 12, Peter stood up and offered exhibit B. The phenomenon that God saving Gentiles, independent of circumcision and the law of Moses, was not something new to Paul. Peter had experienced it as well. Back in Acts chapter 10. You remember the story. In Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision. And in the vision, all kinds of animals that God in the Old Testament had said were unclean and were forbidden to be eaten were now to be eaten. He not only had a vision, but he heard a voice. And the voice, of course, was God. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. What did Peter say? No, Lord. Uh-uh. No, what? Lord. That's very important. He knew God was talking. He knew God was announcing that a new covenant had been established. And an old covenant was now made void. This was tough for Peter. He cries out, I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says to Peter, what God has pronounced clean, don't you call unclean. In other words, you're in a new covenant now. You don't live under old covenant restrictions. And in verse 16, it tells us that God had to tell Peter three times. That's a very important insight. It applies to many of us. In order to fully understand the glorious freedom of the new covenant, very often we are going to have to unlearn what we've previously been taught. Did you hear that? Because a lot of what we've been taught was old covenant. And you got to unlearn that stuff that people have put on us. There's a lot of shouldn't out there. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And we have a new motto in the new covenant economy. Don't you should on me. Peter then got the call from God to go to the Gentiles. He answered that call, and the Gentiles put their faith in Christ. They received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues without being circumcised and without following the law in Moses. Jesus had set them free. And that brings us to Acts 15.10, another hugely important verse, where Peter says this, quote, Why, my brethren, are we putting God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Did you hear that? He's saying, the law didn't work for us. Why would we want to put the law on the Gentiles? And do you see the declaration he made? 
Because you're putting God to the test. In other words, hear this. If you reject the grace of God in the new covenant economy, you are not having a disagreement with the one who's preaching grace. You are at odds with God himself. The message of grace, my friends, is God's message. Verse 13 of Acts 15. James now stands up. And he's going to present Exhibit C in this court of law. He quotes Jeremiah, Amos, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. And this is what he says. Listen closely. The prophets foretold that God would save the Gentiles and all who get circumcised and do the works of the law. Is that what he says? Absolutely not. He quotes the prophets and says this. The prophets foretold that God would save the Gentiles and call all those to himself by his name. Own exhibit C. For centuries, the prophets declared that by calling on God's name, Gentiles would be saved. We saw Acts 16 last week. Remember it? The Philippian jailer says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? Man, if ever there was an opportunity to save the church, you got to follow the law of Moses now. That was it. But Paul didn't say it, did he? What do you got to do to be saved, sir? Trust Christ. That's it? That's hard to do. That's hard to say no to your own self-righteousness. We like being good. It gives us a sense of self-satisfaction. That was Nicodemus' struggle. Do you remember it? He came to Jesus. He says, uh, let's have a little theological talk. And Jesus said, you're not in the kingdom, sir. What? I'm a Pharisee. Remember the Sanhedrin? The teacher in all Israel. You're not in the kingdom, sir. What do you say? You've got to be born again. You mean start over? You mean everything I, I did counts nothing? Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Got to start over. Because not by works. It's by grace through faith. That's hard. James now stood up and he said, this is my judgment. Here comes the decision. We will not trouble those who are turning to God from the Gentiles. In other words, meaning we shall not add circumcision to the gospel, nor shall we add following the law of Moses as a requirement for them to be saved or sanctified. The only thing we ask is in love, monitor your freedom and restrict it in order to not cause your weaker Jewish brethren to stumble. Paul won his fight, my friends. Paul won his public fight for freedom. So let's go back to chapter 2 and go through very quickly what, in essence, is his victory speech. Verses 1 and 2, he says, I went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. God revealed to me I needed to do it, so I did it. When God tells you to do something, do it. In Jerusalem, I had a private meeting first with the leaders. That's a great insight. It's wise to search out a matter privately before you go to battle in public. 
They affirmed his message, so the public meeting took place, Acts 15. After weighing the evidence, the verdict was reached. Verse 3, even though Titus was a Gentile, he was not compelled to be circumcised. Verse 4, false brethren, however, oh, that's a neat word, pseudo-adelphos, pseudo. Looks like, but it's not real. So the Pharisees in Acts 15 believed and I believe they were saved, but they were struggling with really being free. Here we got a whole different issue. These are people who are naming the name of Jesus, but it doesn't say they believed. These are false brethren. And they're trying to corrupt the gospel. And they're trying to put believers who have been set free back under the bondage of the law. But in verses 6 through 10, Paul says, we won the day. We were affirmed to proclaim the grace of God apart from the law to the Gentiles. The battle for the purity of the gospel of grace has been won. And it has become the law of the land for the church. The very essence of the gospel, mark this, is that we have been set free from the law and set free to be to God through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel. The problem is you can't fight this battle once and be done. It's a battle that's going to have to be perpetually fought. Because there, there are these people out there, and they're always going to be there, who put the focus on themselves and religion and try to put us back under bondage. And guess what? It happens in verses 11 through 15. And I think the Holy Spirit put it there so that you and I would realize we can't relax. And so Paul now secondly fights a private battle for freedom. Verse 11. Verse 11 tells us that two men have entered the ring to slug it out. In this corner we have the Apostle Paul. In this corner we have the Apostle Peter. And look what Paul says. I opposed Peter to the face. You are wrong, Peter. Why? Paul says he stood condemned. What does that mean? This does not mean that he lost his salvation. We know that can't happen. What it means is he took a position that he knew was wrong. And in doing so, he was undermining the gospel. Let's say, what did he do? Look at verse 12. Peter was enjoying his freedom. What does it say? It says he was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating Gentile food, just as he had been taught back in Acts chapter 10. By the way, eating with the Gentiles, the verb is in the imperfect tense, which means he was continuously eating with the Gentiles. He was feasting. He was porking out at the buffet. He was chowing down on pork chops and crawfish and shrimp and crabs and oysters on a cracker with a little Tabasco. Until certain men from James came along. And by the way, these guys were name dropping. We already saw what James believed back in Acts 15. So you know what's going on here? When you have a weak argument, you do name dropping to support your argument. And as soon as Peter saw those guys and their religiousness, Incredibly, Peter withdrew from the buffet line. 
And by the, word, by the way, the word withdrew is hupastello. It's a military term for a strategic retreat. That tells us that he did this gradually so that he would be unnoticed. Can you see him? Can you see him? Chowing down on those crawfish. And he looks over and says, uh-oh, legalists from Jerusalem. We're from James. What are you doing eating that stuff, Jewish man? So Peter just sort of slowly went away, you know, probably eating a few crawfish while he walks. <laughs> Why is he doing that? So it won't be noticed. One writer called it a sneaky retreat. He did that because he was afraid what the men of James might think. On this, my friends, peer pressure is not just a struggle for kids in school. Peer pressure can get you into trouble at any age. Every one of us has a need deep within us to be accepted, to be affirmed. And that need is so huge that we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. There are a lot of people in my office telling me what they've done to feel affirmed and accepted. That's why we need to understand that in Christ, we're totally accepted. So that we don't have to look to people anymore for the acceptance that God can only give. Hallelujah. Do not be afraid of what people might think, my friends. Be concerned about what God thinks. Well, Peter's hypocrisy did not go unnoticed. The one person you would not want to notice your hypocrisy noticed. The Apostle Paul. Figures. And this is so important, my friends. This is a greater issue than who you choose to sit with. The essence of the gospel is at stake. The decision had already been made that the gospel was to be by grace through faith apart from any works of the law. But hear me on this. If the church did not put into practice that decision, that decision would become irrelevant. It's just like our United States government, gang. We got books on the law, but they haven't been followed. And so they're irrelevant today in our culture. And if that happened, the church would have split into two factions. The Jewish Christian church that trusts Jesus and follows the Mosaic law. Which, by the way, exists today. They're called Messianic Jews. And the Gentile Christian church that trusts Jesus and lives free of the Mosaic law. And so Paul throws the first and only punch of this private fight, and it's a knockout punch. There is no room for negotiations. Hebrews says pursue peace, but not without holiness. Now, even though Peter and Paul are the only two combatants, the fight is in front of an audience. Paul didn't wait for a private audience. That's significant. Sometimes when somebody commits a public act like that, they need to be publicly corrected. Because those in the public might be led astray. Peter, Paul says to Peter, verse 14, if you are a Jew and you've been living like the Gentiles, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like a Jew? You've been living free from the law of Moses, my friend. Let them live free of the law of Moses. And the gospel of grace is the victor. 
brings us thirdly to the freedom that now we have to fight to protect. So what's the summation of all this? Paul goes on in verse 15. Look at what he says. We are Jews and not sinners from among the Gentiles. What in the world is that all about? We are Jews and not sinners from among the Gentiles. you got to understand history. The historical practice of the Jews was to call Gentiles sinners because they did not have the law as a guide. And in the Jewish mind, that's why they lived such sinful lives. By the way, that is a sham. The Jews had the law and they didn't live any better either. That's what the point Paul's trying to make. Their boast, we're Jews, we're not like them. We have the law, we have a guide. And verse 16, Paul says, nevertheless, powerful word, a man's not justified by the law. Why? No one can keep the law. So we Jews who have become Christians, who believed in Jesus, gave up on the law as a means of acquiring righteousness so that we could be made justified, righteous by faith. Romans 10.10, with the heart man believes unto righteousness. And that's the gospel, Peter. Verse 17, again, it sounds confusing. Paul says, if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? What's he talking about? Stay in the context and you'll get it. What's Peter been doing? He's been living in a new covenant economy, chowing down on formerly restricted foods. If we're sinners because we're eating pork chops and crawfish, Paul's point is that Jesus is causing us to sin. <laughs> Make sense? He says, is that what's going on here? What does he say? May it never be. That's ludicrous. Verse 18, again, sounds confusing. By the way, Peter said in his epistle, Paul's confusing sometimes. <laughs> Look what he says here. If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What? It's simple. Stay with me. If I, by preaching grace, have destroyed law-keeping works as a way of making a man righteous, if I then go back to law-keeping works and leave the economy of grace, I have made myself a transgressor again because I'm now back under the law I could never keep in the first place. Get it? And then comes verse 19. Listen, please listen, my friends. Galatians 2.19, in my opinion, is one of the most neglected verses in the Bible by the church. And it ought to be a memory verse that's taught to little kids as soon as they can learn. Look what it says. For through the law, I died to the law so that I could live unto God. If you want to live unto God, then let the law do what it was supposed to do, which is drive you away from the law. 
to the place you should have been the whole time, the life-giving Jesus. The purpose of the law was to drive us away from the law. The purpose of the law was to kill us and condemn us, lead us to Jesus so that we could find life. And again, listen, my friends, please listen. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says that the moment we placed faith in Jesus Christ, we got placed into union with him. We were fully identified with Jesus. We are now fully immersed into Jesus. So completely immersed and identified with Jesus that when he went to the cross and died, we died with him. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. I hear all these people struggling with life, saying, I wish I could just die. You already have. That prideful, arrogant, selfish, manipulative, controlling, you need me to keep going and you get the idea. Everything that was wrong about you has been nailed to the cross and removed. And you have been made brand new. Oh my goodness. And Paul heralds this glory of the gospel for everybody to hear in verse 20. For I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this verse is your testimony. And everybody so focuses on verse 20, and it's a glorious verse that they miss verse 19. You can't have one without the other. The law drove you away from the law to drive you to Jesus. And we get an amazingly powerful byproduct from that. Romans 7, 1 through 4, when we died in Christ, we died to the law. When Adam sinned, my friends, he married us to the law. But in Christ, that marriage is now over. One of the spouses died. And that marriage ended so that we could now be married to Jesus and become his bride. And that's the only way to bear fruit unto God. The life of Jesus has been placed in us to be expressed through us as we walk in faith in him to be our everything, our all in all. You need patience? He'll be your patience. You need strength? He'll be your strength. You need mercy? He'll be your mercy. You live with somebody that's hard to love? He'll be your love. He wants to be everything. And so Paul sums it up in Galatians 2.21. I will not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. End of discussion. There is only one way for man to be made with, right with God, and that is by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. So what do we say by way of appropriation? What do we do? How do we, how do we walk out of here today? Let me just give you some bullet points. We have been set free. We don't have to try to get free. We have been set free to live free. 
through faith in Jesus. We have now been given this message from God so that other men could be set free. But if that's going to happen, we've got to proclaim this message that sets men free. We have to protect this message. We have to fight against those who would reverse our freedom by adding works and the performance of faith instead of faith alone. Freedom has to be preserved, and the only way it can be preserved is to be fought for. I'll put it this way. You really take a stand for grace? You're going to lose some friends. <laughs> because they would rather have their law. Because by doing their good works, they feel good about themselves. Instead of trusting Christ. To feel good about themselves. I'll leave you with this. In a Focus on the Family radio broadcast, there was a young man in high school being interviewed. He had started several Bible studies. He was leading young kids to Jesus. It was quite a revival on his campus. Focus on the Family heard about it and brought him in for an interview. As the interview was winding down, the interviewer said to the young man, what about the peer pressure you've been getting for raising the name of Jesus so high on your campus? Without batting an eye, the young man said, sir, I am the peer pressure on my campus. Father, in Jesus' name, may the saints of Grace Life Fellowship be the peer pressure to the world of religion, especially the Christian religion that just can't seem to break free of the law of Moses. Just like those Pharisees back in Acts 15. May we endure their slanders. Oh, you hyper-gracious. You who propagate easy believism and cheap grace. And may we lift high the cross of Christ. Which released us from the law. Because in him we died to it. So that we could live unto God. Amen and amen. Thanks again for joining us as we go through Pastor Frank's series on Galatians. We'll be back again tomorrow with his third message from the series titled, We Are Justified Freely. In the meantime, be sure to like and share this message. And if you'd like to support our podcast ministry, please consider donating at gracelifefellowship.org. Thanks, and we'll see you again tomorrow.